If a player cleans his ball during play of a hole, except on the putting green, he shall incur a penalty of one stroke. That's a rule, Jerry. But it's just a friendly game. Why do you always have to be such a stickler? Because that's the way I was raised. Welcome to Spirit of the Game, brought to you by the Colorado Golf Association. Here are your hosts, Ed Mate and Lewis Harry. Well, we're back. Another month is is coming, is launching. We're here in October. I've got my Halloween costume all picked out for the end of the month. I think I'm going to go as, uh, I don't know. i got to think about what I'm going to go as. Maybe uh, Tom Doak? I don't know. I, I think Tom would appreciate that. So it's uh, Ed May here. Very special guest for this month's Spirit of the Game, our very own. We've done this now with a couple other very owns, Thomas Pagel, Robert Duke, uh, very proud of these guys. Today, I am privileged to have with us none other than the now famous, he wasn't famous when he was with us, Pete Liss. Pete, welcome. Well, man, what an introduction that is. I'm not sure how famous or <laughs> how privileged you are. I think the privilege is, is on this end here, but uh, but no thanks. Uh, look forward to catching up. Well, it's great for you to join us. Um, and it's funny, I'll we'll get to this, but there's no such thing as a, a, a famous rules official. You don't want to be famous. That's not good, no, that's, right? Yeah, that's well, like that's my worst nightmare. True. Uh, that's my worst uh, yeah. nightmare. Yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll I know, get there. I know, I know, I know. We will. And plenty of discussions we've had in the past on, on that. Yeah, you've heard my you know my opinion on that. So let's start with your background. Uh, take us back just to kind of give you an idea where the story is headed, Pete was our boat right intern. Uh, he'll give us the details, but has gone on to a career as a rules uh, rules official at the highest level on the PGA Tour. Always a lifelong dream, but I don't, I don't want to steal your your thunder, but so tell <laughs> us, take me back in time. I'll, I'm sure you'll jog my memory, but how did you find out about the CGA? Tell us what brought you here and how your golf career got started. Yeah, I mean, my golf career started at a really young age, and you know, I was running carts at my place at the of course, I grew up at the age of 10, which I don't think was legal at the time, but we still did it. And they put me on the payroll at 14, which was legal. And that, you know, just had a love of the love of golf from the age of, you know, four, the first time I stepped on a, on a golf course with my dad. And, uh, you know, I knew kind of that was going to be my career. I wasn't a very good uh, student in high school, so I didn't have a lot of opportunities outside of high school. I uh, went to school to be a golf professional, which uh, in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, which which it did. And, and, um, and, uh, then I, then I was a golf professional for one, one summer at a, at a pr- small nine hole private club out in East Boston, Massachusetts. And, uh, which is where you were, just, right. You were, you were, this is in Massachusetts where you grew up. Yeah. I grew up in Massachusetts. I grew up on the Western part of Massachusetts in the Berkshires, but and, the Boston and I, I'll is- interrupt here to say, I will please know if you're listening, obviously you are listening or you know, that's obvious. Uh, Pete is not, and I mean not, a Red Sox fan, not a Patriots fan, just the opposite. So uh, that, that's absolutely yeah. true. That's why I make sure the, the Yankees, which have had a Yankees have had a, a really a, a poor year, unfortunately, especially with the payroll that we have. Got to, there's going to be some changes coming, and then you know my Giants looked absolutely awful uh, <laughs> Sunday night in the opening week, and then <laughs> looked awful for the first half of the Arizona Cardinals game somehow. Brian Dale must have gave a speech of his life and it came out firing. But uh we'll we'll see tonight, uh Thursday night football with the with the San Francisco 49ers. But anyway, uh, I digress. You got me going on that topic. Um so yeah, so I was uh, a golf professional in Boston, which you know I didn't clash with you know clash with some of those Red Sox fans quite a bit. Um uh, <laughs> and it's just I, I loved the tournament running, the tournament side of of being a golf professional, but hated, hated everything else. The hours, not that the hours are much better now uh, in this, in what I'm doing, but, um, uh, and just the politics of it all. So when I got done with that summer, I said, you know, I really want to focus on tournament administration. And I was really starting to think back about the places that I applied. I, I kind of, I started researching, you know, how can I get into just doing tournament and rule stuff? When I was in school, we had a rules of golf class. So I, you know, I did, did pretty well in and, I kind of really enjoyed the rules. So I got on to the USJ's website and saw this PJ Boatwright inter- junior internship program. And I said, yeah, that, that sounds pretty cool. And I started kind of looking at states and organizations throughout the country. And 
And I was trying to think of them all today, and I, and I couldn't remember them all. I know Northern California was one that I applied to, obviously Colorado, I think uh, Arizona. Anyway, there was about four or five, and uh, I only got one callback, and, and it was the Colorado Golf Association. I went, you know, went through that interview process. I remember that with, with you and Jerry Brown, I think, uh, and Jeanette, and Anne, and I'm just, you know, I'm just trying yeah. to remember all with maybe even Dustin. Sure, Thomas was in the in the room there too. It was, uh, you know, it was really one of my first, you know, major interviews. It's time for me major interview, and uh, uh, I got a call back. I don't know, I don't remember how how long it took, but uh, that I, it's, each guy selected me, and I actually never got another response from any of the other organizations. I think maybe <laughs> I got a letter from one. But I never got a call or anything. Just Once again, so. showing that we're smarter than our than our any other golf association. <laughs> we got that one right. Well, and uh, it yeah. it was hey, listen, it was uh, it was fantastic. Uh, it was a fantastic twelve months. I learned so much, um, you know, in that time, uh, you know, between yourself and Warren Wilson and and Jerry and, and Thomas, and Dustin, and all y'all. So. Um, and I knew I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be a golf, uh, a, a, a rules official. I knew I love the rules of golf. I love the tournament aspect. I tried to play kind of never really a good, play, good enough player. And, uh, but I just knew I loved the professional game and loved the game of golf at the highest level. Well, what I remember most about you was that was very clear. You made it clear that that was what you wanted to do and you did it. And it took a, it took a while. And, uh, couldn't be more proud of, of the hard work you put in to get where you are today um, and shows dreams can come true. Um, and we'll, and, and we'll kind of continue the story just to, before we move on though, the, the PJ Boatwright internship that the USGA sponsors is really, I think the one of the greatest things the USGA has done for the game of golf. They have brought people like you. I'm too old to have been a Boatwright, but I uh, have seen this program blossom really since the early nineties to what it is today and, and you look at the leadership and the game of golf and it's really just riddled in a good way with Boatwright alumni like yourself so kudos to the usga for having the vision and foresight and they named it right too the legendary pete Boatwright or pete, uh, <laughs> a pj Boatwright. and i know he'd yep. be proud of you uh, knowing that rules were his his calling card too so okay so then then what happened so you did your internship it's all coming back to me now. We decided we didn't, yeah. like, you. We didn't like you that well. Uh, well, yeah, you didn't, didn't like you, it quite enough. And uh, just, you know, that 12 months went by and and uh, you kicked me out the door. No, <laughs> uh, just nothing was available at the time. And, hey, that's that's life. And so um, I moved on to the Golf Association of Philadelphia. Mark Peterson, the executive director, another great mentor, uh, great guy, um, another really exceptionally run organization, uh, Golf Association. They uh, he asked me to come out and, and run their junior golf program, um, which I did. And, and I and I said, I loved uh, working with him, Kirby Martin, um, Tyler, you know, uh, and, and just all those guys. They were just uh, they're fantastic to, to work with. And um, I ended up uh, liking it. But I really love Colorado. Colorado just had a special place in my heart. Uh, really enjoyed just being out there and. Uh, fortunate enough, I can't remember. Someone moved on in the organization there at the CGA. I can't remember exactly who it was, but it, it created a spot for for me with Jerry Brown on the course rating and handicapping department. And he called and said, "Hey, do you want to come back?" I'm like, "Absolutely, I love it there." And even though it wasn't in the rules of golf department, I knew I was going to be doing, you know, still some some rules of golf and, and tournament admin stuff. And I and I and to be honest with you, I really think it was a great learning experience too, to get more involved in, in the course rating handicapping aspect. Just, 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 just that's learn all, uh, all realms of, uh, of the golf association business. Cause yes, I did want to become a rules official, but you know, that's, there's not many of those. So learning, you know, the, the time, just learning the entire golf association business. And, you know, I, I singled in on the tournament aspect, the rules of golf aspect, but the PJ Boatwright internship that, that, that's just a small part of it, or I guess it's a pretty big part, but it is a, just a part of it. There's other parts of the organization, particularly now the way the golf association realm has just grown in all the different facets and all that you all do. Um, so it was, it was fantastic to, to get to do that for, for a few years. And then um, I think uh, uh, see Warren, Warren, I think had moved on and, 
and uh, Thomas and I kind of, I think Thomas ended up being the assistant executive director and I moved into yep. the director of rules and competitions role and um, which I, you know, I think was in that role for five or six years. Yeah, we, and, had, a, uh, we had an all-star team, man, between you and boom. Thomas. We, wow. No, in <laughs> all seriousness, you? we were, yeah, yeah. Thank, we needed somehow to make up for me, but yeah, um, right. no, that was a lot of fun in those years. And and I just, just the energy and the passion you guys both brought, particularly for the rules. Um, and that's something we really pride ourselves on. We have a culture here uh, at the CGA where rules are, really the foundation of the game of golf, obviously. And as golf administrators, you need to, you need to really have that skill set and, and be credible. So we're very proud of, uh, and that culture has continued after you, it, we, you know, um, whether it was Brianna or Ashley, some of you are still here, some aren't, Robert Duke. Uh, we've always attracted uh, that passion that we must have seen in you when we inter- when we interviewed you. So for sake of time, because we got a lot of ground to cover, uh, let's talk about your transition after being our rules and competitions director for uh, several years, as I recall. I can't remember yeah, how many. Five, five or six, yeah, I can't yeah. remember exactly um, either. But. Um, an opportunity came knocking. Yeah, so I, uh, you know, I had a... a I was always still trying to look at what I can do in professional golf. And I can't remember how this opportunity came along. It might've been Thomas who mentioned it to me um, at one of the, one of the events that he was at and uh, said, Hey, you know, the LPGA is going to be hired. I said, well, I want to get in professional golf somehow. And, and the only way, you know, what, what better way just to, just to get into golf, whether it's men's professional golf, women's professional golf. So I applied and went through their interview process and, um, uh, they flew me out to Portland, Oregon, I guess, where Sue Witters, that's where she's from. And I, I just literally got off a plane, went through security, went to a restaurant in, in Portland, Oregon Airport and, and did an interview and and, and got, just went back through security, got on a plane and headed back to Colorado. It was a process. <laughs> and then uh, one of my really good friends, my best friend was getting married a few few months, a few weeks later. And uh, and I got a call at the rehearsal dinner party and uh and I saw the number and I knew who it was. And I'm like, man, I can't answer this. It was, you know, into the evening at the rehearsal dinner. So you state of mind <laughs> might not have been totally, totally on par there. But, um, <laughs> but so I had a few buddies that kind of slapped me in the face and said, okay, you can do this. Just call her back. And I did. And, and at that point they offered me the job. So, um, you know, that was, uh, it was kind of a, a no brainer. It was tough to leave the CGA uh, and, and y'all and, um, especially for all that you had done for me and gave, gave me my, really my first big start. And, uh, and, and I learned so much there, but, um, you know, like I said, I saw this opportunity and I, and I kind of had to go for it and spent six years out there and it's six great years, a really great organization. Mike Juan had, you know, they were going through some, some tough times. I think before Mike had, had kind of uh, gotten over, taken over the realm as the commissioner and, and, they went from, I don't remember how many events they went from like 20 events all the way up to I think they had 35 when I left. Um, and really he just, he led a great organization and, and Sue Witters who uh, is the, you know, kind of a, is the lead official uh, chief official out there. And she was great to learn from and, and comment um, Jim Haley and this, this, the great crew, they're small and lean as far as numbers wise, you kind of do a lot of different things. Um, but, uh, it was another just fantastic learning experience and learning, you know, it was kind of a good step for me to kind of get my feet, but learn the travel aspect because that, that ends up becoming a really huge part of, of the job. As, as I know you had mentioned to me many times when he's, when you're telling me, Hey, when I was telling you, I wanted to do this, you're like, Hey, just remember, you're going to be away a lot. And, um, and you really kind of found that out, uh, you know, right away, obviously, and it was a good, good way to kind of get my feet wet as i said so then and we'll finish this and we'll circle back because what i want to do for the uh the remainder of our time together is really talk about r- rules officiating this is a rules podcast yeah. uh, i think our listeners will enjoy hearing the life of a rules official and um that's part of it but um also want to you know use this as an opportunity to talk specifically about some of the rulings you've been a part of uh, what you've learned and all those things so you're with the LPGA, been there six years. Um, then another opportunity comes along. It's kind of you suggested or were, were thinking when you first took the job with the LPGA. So tell us how the PGA Tour uh, position opened. 
Yeah, so uh, it's funny. I was on my way to the CME Tour Championship. I advanced that event um, in my time with the LPGA. and I think we'll probably talk more about what advancing is here in, in a few. But uh, So I was down there, and I got a, got a text message from Jim Duncan, who's the uh, – the vice president of rules of competitions out on the corn Ferry tour and said, Hey Pete, just want to, you know, love to catch up with you at some point. And, um, and he's like, well, what's the, my wife, Kelly, uh, was with me and said, well, what's this about? You know, the, what are they calling for? I mean, it's, it's gotta be kind of, maybe kind of cool. And, um, you know, kind of long story short, um, Jerry Fultz, who was doing most of the, um, broadcasting for the uh, golf channel on the LPGA tour at the time, uh, also did some corn ferry tour stuff and and the position was coming open on corn ferry and and uh and it was web.com at the time and, and jim duncan was talking with jerry and jerry about people and whatever and, and he said hey you know you really should look at this beat list guy out on the on the lpga tour and um jim actually lives here in wilmington where i live wilmington north carolina so it kind of worked out and it took a little bit of time to kind of back and forth and when our you know our schedules didn't necessarily align quite quite well quite easily enough but um we finally you know had a chance to to get out to dinner and they invited me out for uh, kind of a test uh test event i worked one out one event out in lafayette louisiana uh can't even remember the name of the event um but uh into uh, the corn fairy guys and and just did one event out there and at the end of it uh, jim said hey uh we'd, you know we'd like you to come out and start working for us and i said sign me up buddy this is this is this is fantastic mm -hmm. and um you know, spent two years, uh, two seasons out there. And COVID kind of made it more like a year and a half because of a lot of everything yeah. that was going on. But spent spent just uh, two kind of short years out there, and then, um, which is great. You know, too, it's it's just another stepping stone to get to to where I'm at. And uh, I had the fortunate opportunity. You know, when you're working on the Corn Ferry Tour, you're working four, five, six PGA Tour events, supplementing their help. Uh, throughout the year, generally in the beginning of the year when we have multi-course events. And I was getting to know some of those guys out there. And a few guys happened to be retiring at the end of 2020, the 2020 season. Uh, David Pruitt and um, I can't remember who else was retiring, but uh, J J uh, John Lovis. And uh, so two positions had come open and and uh, Gary Young uh, said, Pete, we'd, we'd love you to, to come over. And I was like, all right, here we go. Now my dream has, has come true. It had taken, you know, uh, four, uh, I don't know how many years it took. It had taken probably 16 years, but here we are. And, and uh, you know, it's uh, it was a dream come true. That's fantastic. So um, I'd like to kind of dive right into, uh, you alluded to advancing and in the spirit of kind of staying kind of uh, in the, kind of the, the the way a tournament is managed uh from a rules perspective on the pj tour so i know the same is true with the lpga so why don't you just kind of uh, elaborate a bit on what advancing means when you're a rules That's official when, on an yeah. official tour yeah so when you're the advanced official you, you're you're the, you're really the lead contact for that tournament for the entire year and uh you know you have anywhere from our staff we have anywhere between three four i have five advances uh on a regular every every year and uh so you're the lead contact dealing you know, with the tournament director the agronomist uh the suit golf course superintendent uh, and then as the event gets you lead up to the event um you're you're there one week before so you have tournament week which is monday to monday to sunday you're there the week before monday to sunday and, and at that point you're just really uh, helping manage um, uh, the tournament aspect. There's obviously a lot of stuff goes on, TV tower builds, grandstands. Um, but it's also one of the few times that you kind of go back, you go back to your, your roots in, in the beginning and you think of the it's closest I have to remember to being in the golf golf association world is getting out there and you're marking the golf course, which, which is fun. You know, you kind of, it's your own, you're doing your own thing. Yeah. You, you, you consult with some people, but, um, you know, it's, it's your baby, it's your tournament. And, um, so we're marking the golf course We're we're, uh, selecting, um, you know, working on the green speeds for the event, the mowing heights, rough heights, uh, doing all that with the agronomist we're fortunate enough to have a, an agronomist on site the entire time, uh, with, with you. Um, and we're putting together, you know, the, the pro-am, 
uh, for the week. And then just you're really the liaison between the working staff that's coming out, the other rules officials and the tournament and all the information that they need prior to arrival, whether it's parking and dining and, and uh, what our TV times are. Um, and also, obviously, the, the most important part, the players, and making sure that everything is, is ready for them upon their arrival. Locker room is set up. We have registration ready to go. The dining hours are good. Um, where are they going to park? What, uh, you know, where are there spots for their families to eat? And um, so there's a lot that goes into it that's just that's outside of necessarily the rules of golf. So when the, when the tournament lights go on on Thursday, you know, you're, you are out of there on the golf course as a rules official, but prior leading up to that, there's a lot of non rules of golf stuff that just needs to get done, which, you know, is typical for, for any, any event kind of, it's very similar, I guess, to, you know, thinking of the Colorado open Colorado open, one of the best state opens that that I know y'all run. And it's just one of the best state opens in the country. And it's, you know, that kind of was another good, good way to learn and, and uh, there's just a lot that goes on to that. It's not just putting on a golf tournament. There's a lot more to it. Yeah. So, so you're the advanced guy. Then how many other rules officials arrive? When do they arrive? And what does the rules team look like once the, as you said, the lights go on? Yeah. So uh, it, it, you know, it varies at each event, but generally we'll have a minimum of eight. Um, Most of the time it's at least nine rules officials. That's including the advanced uh, rules official. Uh, and then you have an event like Waste Management Phoenix Open where you can't get around. So we have 10, 11, almost 12, mm. you know, it could be 12 right. guys just just because you're you're so locked with so many people and, and getting around. And the way it's comprised is you have, you know, you have a chief referee. So we have uh, five chief referees on staff uh, on the PGA Tour. Uh, and they're really, they're the point of contact. So for once, once. So are you, are you, a, chief there, ref- are you a chief referee? I am not a chief referee. I'm just a just a regular old tournament referee. Okay. Uh, the chief referee. You're gonna get, get there. Gary Young. Yeah, you'll get there. Uh, someday. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Gary Young, Stephen Cox, Ken Tackett, uh, Stephen Tool, John Much, and uh, Mark Dusbalik. Okay. I may have missed one, but they're I, the ones that, that you, you generally see in the booth. Some all those names are familiar because they tend to get yeah, so TV. Yeah. If there's a you know a high a very high profile, something controversial ruling, or we have, you know, a lot, most of the time it's a weather delay. We have a weather delay and the person that goes on TV is the chief referee, mm-hmm. but they're also the ones that are uh, making a, a lot of the, you know, decisions, do anything that, you know, player regulations wise, if there's something that we need to talk to a player or caddy about, they're the, they're the person that the go-to person mm-hmm. for that week. Then you have your setup officials. So um, you have two setup officials each week, one on the front, one on the back. And setup officials, exactly that. They're the ones that are picking the whole locations uh, for the for both the pro-am and the tournament rounds and the uh, and the T locations. Uh, and it's really up to them. Uh, with some insight from the chief referee and the advanced official, who obviously know the golf course really well. A lot of these, a lot of our guys, including myself, we, we set up a lot of the same places every year. So we kind of get a good feel of the, of the golf course after, you know, the first year you can kind of rely on some, some help event occasionally, but uh, you know, we're all professionals at it and we all enjoy doing it. It's one of the really fun perks of the job is to get into select locations. And um, you know, sometimes you, you get a good one. Sometimes you get a bad one, but it's part of the, part of the deal, but it's, uh, but it's really the, really a fun so part of the stay, job. St- staying with whole locations. Cause that's always a, uh, obviously when they when you as you say if anything goes wrong it goes wrong and it's a pretty big black eye if you if you pick a bad one doesn't seem like that happens often if ever you might I mean maybe you hear it but just as a as a fan of professional golf and watching you don't generally hear a lot of banter around a a bad hole location but I'm curious do you get a lot of grief from players about hole locations the way we do it feels like and and how do you how do you make what constitutes uh, what is your process in selecting and, and to avoid it, like you said, a bad one? Yeah, you know, I think occasionally you get some comments, but I, it, it, these guys are just so good that it, you can you can put it in the top most difficult spot. You, there's times you, I've set up holes and I go, there's no way these guys we're going to make see five birdies in this hole today. And they go out and there's 30 birdies on this hole. Mm-hmm. It's just they're that good. You can't you can't tuck them enough. 
at times, but there's times where, you know, it just, whether you, they get short-sighted and they, and you know, sometimes it's um, maybe the way they played the hole uh, or sometimes, yeah, maybe we do get it, uh, you know, half a pace off or, and whatnot, but um, yeah, the process of selecting the hole. I mean, first first thing is is always you know what's your green speed and how receptive is the is the uh, is the green for the shot that you're going to be playing in. You know, what's the yardage that that these guys are going to be playing in? So if they got a really short wedge in their hand, you can you can be a little bit more aggressive, maybe closer to a slope than you would be. But if they're playing four or five irons in the hole. Um, you're probably going to be a little bit more conservative, give them a little bit more room and maneuverability to get to get around the hole. And, uh, and, and so a lot of that's a pain and then wind weather forecast, mm -hmm. you know, are we really firm? Uh, have we had not had any much rain? Is it, is it really firm on the golf course or we have rain in the forecast and it's just going to be super soft. So yeah, there's those factors. Um, you know, the one question you get is, you know, sometimes I'll be out setting up and you'll have a, a, a marshal or a spectator say, man, that on a Thursday or Friday and say, man, that looks like it should be a Sunday hole. There's no real Sunday holes. Um, yeah. You know, it, you're, you're trying to balance that every day. You don't want the difficulty to be the most, you know, the 18 most difficult holes on Sunday and the, right. and the 18 easiest holes on Thursday. You want to balance that every day. And, um, and, and, you know, for a lot of different reasons, but um, you're just trying to just give them a similar test every day and to identify the best player that week. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's get into some, um, you're, you're, I'd say you're probably, are you the only current PJ tour rules official that also came up through the LPGA? No, Bo Reem also. Okay. Uh, Bo Reem was, uh, uh, worked for the Arizona Golf Association. Then he was with the LPGA for, he actually was at the LPGA a little bit longer than I was. Uh, and now he's, uh, he's on the PGA tour as well. Okay. So when you were talking about whole locations and the type of shot coming in, how much different is it setting up a PGA tour event versus an LPGA tour event? Yeah, I would say there's definitely some differences. And, you know, interesting you asked that question. You know, we have a, a new event uh, at the end of the year called the Grant Thornton Invitational, which used to be the QBE uh, shootout. Um, and that's going to be a, a mixed team event with uh, a professional, a, a men PGA Tour professional and an OPGA Tour professional. And this is going to be the first time, at least in my career, where we're going to have to set up jointly uh, for this. I think there is, um, you know, there are some uh Differences, obviously, you got to be a little bit. Uh, I think with with how high that the mm -hmm. the the most of the the guys on the PGA Tour hit it, um, they can you can be a little bit more uh, tucky. You know, you can tuck some hole locations a little bit more than maybe you can on the LPGA. But listen, the LPGA Tour, they hit it so good. It, it was it's unbelievable how good they hit it. And, um, you know, you can you can be pretty aggressive out there too, um, with, with them and, and they hit it so straight. It's amazing how well they can hit a hybrid, uh, yeah. with sur surgical. It's just, yeah. you know, I hit a I hybrid remember. and I've got 50 yard, you know, 50 yard. <laughs> <shot dispersion. laughs> yeah. Well, I just remember when you were on the LPG and you're a good player, you're very humble, but you're a very good player. You won our club championship here when you were playing at common ground. Uh, even though I like to give you crap, I know you're a very good player. And you made it, I said, could you play on the LPGA tour? How much success would you have? And I can't remember exactly what you said, but tell us, how would you answer that question today? How, how well would you have done on the LPGA tour uh, as a, uh, you know, a scratch I, player? If I made, if I made one or two cuts a year, I'd be, I'd be happy. I mean, that's, it's, it, everybody thinks that, you know, they play a shorter yardage and, and, and they're going out there and shooting 10 under, you know, rounds of 10 under par. Well, they're that good. They really are. And it's, it's a scratch player. They're, they're playing on golf courses that are firm and fast, just like they do on the PGA tour. And the rough heights are high. The, the, the uh, fairways are narrow and there's just, there's just so much, it's just so much more different than people really realize. And than just going out and playing common ground or where anywhere you're playing on a regular basis. Um, sure. Yeah. You can go out and shoot, shoot a few under par at common ground and, and feel like you can and do well on the PGA tour, LPGA tour, uh, if you're playing the same tees. Uh, and, but I'm, I'm telling you, it's just a, it's just a different animal. I think, you know, the, the, 
from the tees that uh, you would play at Common Ground, the, you know, the players on the LPGA Tour would, would shoot a lot under par all the time. <laughs> it's just they're yeah, I've gotten they're just, I've gotten a tiny little taste of that playing a couple of years in the Colorado Women's Open, which is really effectively and um, not even an Epson Tour level. It's just kind of one notch below that. And when I play with those women in the Pro-Am portion, I'm just in awe. As you said, the the ball striking, the consistency, the the putting, the chipping, it's just it's humbling. So I I kind of laugh when I hear a male player kind of scoff and say they could play. And it's made me such a fan of women's golf. Quite frankly, I think the style they play, you know, I know we'll avoid any topics of controversy, but the rollback that's being proposed, um, you know, on the men's game, um, it really is a men's issue. And I think the game is in a lot of ways infinitely better, um, you, you know, on the women's side and for that reason. Yeah. I mean, listen, I just can't, I can't say enough good things about how well they play. And, um, and I'm, I'm just really, really excited to, to see them play side by side with Tony Finau, Ricky Fowler, you know, with mm-hmm. Nelly Cord is playing Jess Cord, you know, uh, at least I think they're committed right now. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch them play side by side. We've gotten a little taste of that, uh, you know, in, in the past few years with, with Nellie Corda and, and Lexi Thompson playing in the event, but they played, they played the same tees as the men. Um, so this year we're going to mix up a little bit. We're going to go play a, a slightly shorter set of tees um, uh, for the ladies, but uh, it's just going to be, I think it's going to be a really good, a showcase for both tours yeah. um, here at the end of the year. So let's, let's, uh, let's move into rulings. Uh, I'm yeah. sure a lot of folks are curious to know how, how do you approach a ruling? Walk us through a scenario. Um, you're on a zone, let's say, and you get a call on the radio. We need a rules official on hole six and you're the closest one. Um, how do you approach that ruling? Yeah, kind of walk yeah. us through a, your process. Yeah, so I think a lot of it goes to you just got to be prepared. Uh, and the preparation starts, whether it's the beginning of the week when you arrive on site or the, the years that you, you know, get comfortable working the zone year in, year in, year out. So you just know the lay of the land. So you hear uh, ruling six green, right right at six green, kind of like in your pro- in your head, you're already starting to think, okay, what do I, what do I know about this area? Is there something there, you know, is there a grandstand that's there all the time or do we have, you know, maybe a, a tire rod or mower damage of some sort. So you, I'm always trying to make sure I know the lay of the land before I get in there so that I'm better, better prepared when I do arrive. When I do arrive, you know, I try and park a little bit farther away so I can assess, okay, where, as I'm walking in, okay, where is this golf ball? Where is he? What, what could this possibly be? Um, just so again, you kind of can process in your mind as quickly as you can. Okay. What, where, what's going to happen. And then, cause we're also trying to make sure that, you know, pace of play is obviously a huge part of the game. We're always trying to make sure that we're keeping things moving as fast as we can. And then, and once you're arriving in, at the situation, sometimes it's as simple as you kind of know what the player is going to ask, or you're just going to ask them, Hey, how can I help you? Um, uh, it's generally how I, I approach it. Hey, how, how's it going? So-and-so if I know them or, uh, how can I help you? And, and said, "Hey, my 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 ball's here. Uh, I I grounded my club, and and uh, you know I'm not sure. I was making some practice swings near the ball, and uh, you know ball all of a sudden it just looks like it's in a new new position. And then so then at that point you're just um, giving myself a really difficult one in this podcast because <laughs> that's that's a really yeah. that's one of the more difficult rulings that you can ha- possibly have. But you're at that point you're really just trying to to um, get information from a player." Okay, what you know? When did you notice the golf ball move? How far were you from the golf ball when you were taking your practice swings? Or, you know, when you grounded your club, did the ball move instantaneously? Or, you know, did you ground the club, walk away, all of a sudden, few minutes, you know, you know, ten seconds, thirty seconds later, did the ball move? Mm-hmm. And, and just trying to process that as much as you can. And, you know, we're fortunate enough we have cameras around every green, uh, even whether it be a television camera or uh, or our shot link cameras that record every single shot played from around the green. So we have that also that fallback too, which, which is a nice thing. Um, unfortunately, you know, not everybody has that, but, but we do. And 
and and we do go to that occasionally not not very often but um but there are times that we do that and then from there it's just the outcome um you know okay yep no penalty or yes okay you, you, you ground to the club and ball moved instantaneously we're just gonna go ahead and put it back with a one-stroke penalty so um it's really about like i said i think it's it's about making sure you're you're well prepared in advance um and just knowing the lay of the land so that you can you know you can just be more effective more uh more confident um you know there's some intimidating some intimidating uh players out there for sure and Mm -hmm. and uh you know there's a lot of big names you see on tv so you gotta just stay focused and stay calm cool and collected i guess so um do you have a uh a, a, if you had to say what are the top three rulings you get in a typical tournament? I'm gonna guess that TIO relief of some sort has got to be number one. I'm just guessing. What would be also what else would be on that? And the TIO is a temporary removal obstruction. This is the cities we build on golf courses that end up becoming and getting in the way of a player playing. Uh what else is on your maybe your top three list? Yeah, I would think that uh, one of them that's become more prevalent uh, since we put the put it on the hard, on our hard card, which is our, our local rules for every competition, every golf course we play, is what we call the two and two rule, mm-hmm. where the the uh, immovable obstruction is close to the putting green. If your ball is within two club lengths of an immovable obstruction, that's within two club lengths of the putting green. You know, it's kind of confusing, but uh, get that quite a bit. Um, obviously, at yeah, TIOs, I mean, you know, you could be Sometimes if you're on a hole and uh, you have a whole location that's that's close, you know, you're you're getting at every group and, and that's just makes your day go by really fast. But those are ones you just kind of that's one where you're, you you plan out ahead. I, I do this all the time where I have a string. I go and I find out where my point is, where my mid midpoint is. So I know, OK, if a ball's right at this point, he's going this direction. If he's left mm-hmm. this point, going this direction. Um, in, part of that is part of that being prepared. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, and then the, the, the third one, you know, it's just, it's, it's tough to, to say. Uh, what about balls get, moving? You like you just, the one you, the scenario you just sort of made up there when I asked you the question. Yeah. Hypothetically, is that often where a player has a question about whether the ball moved or not? Or um, I would say it's more, it's, it's more often on the putting green, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and as you know, 2019 really cleared that up for us, it makes it so much easier. Oh, to, yeah. to make that ruling, you know, if, uh, yeah. if a ball, if a, you know, it, you know, our green speeds are so fast. I mean, yeah. you know, we're, if I say, you know, 12 is, is probably fairly average. I'd say we're probably even higher than that most of the time. And when you get green speeds like that on slopes, balls are going to move all the time yeah. and you get any gusts of wind and, and just any, you know, well, ball so, mark, whatever. So, one so I would rule, say that's probably it. One ruling I saw you make, I think it was Max Homa was an embedded ball uh, in a grass face. Uh, I may be wrong on that. I think he was doing a walking yep. and you were the rules official that got called in. I was my, I get excited when I see Pete. Um, that obviously got a lot of attention at the U S open um, with the Rory McElroy. Um, yeah. Just to, just to ask you a couple of questions about the embedded ball, because it was a high profile ruling at the open. And this is a bit of a, you know, me, I'm never short of soapboxes. When I see a ball in U.S. Open rough, and I'm holding up my hand to show you, penetrate the rough on a vertical face, and it's U.S. Open rough with that density of of grass, um, it feels to me that it takes a heck of a lot of of, uh, force for that to actually be embedded, really, Mm -hmm. really change the shape of the earth to get through all that grass. So how do you, how do you, how do you, or what, what is the, what is the sort of guidance that you all agree upon as rules officials uh, to determine if a ball's embedded? So um, a lot of times, one of the first uh, questions we'll ask is, is spectators or marshals around us. Hey, did you see this golf ball bounce? Mm-hmm. And if they said, yeah, we saw it bounce and it kicked to this way, kicked over here, then, you know, it's pretty evident that the ball is not embedded. It's just probably most likely in a cuppy, really bad, you know, Bermuda grass or, or ryegrass lie. Um, if if we have if nobody's around or we didn't see a bounce, then we're we're always going to generally allow the player to go ahead and mark the ball and lift it, and just without cleaning it, obviously, to determine whether it is embedded. 
And the way we do that is, is kind of, you know, I think every official and, and, and maybe has their own, has their own way about it. One, one thing I'll, I'll, I'll do is, um, is I will try and, and probe around to see uh, in that area uh, as to whether the ball has broken the ground. Um, and I'll ask the player first before I do that is, Hey, do you mind if I just check, check to see the ground below? And because, you know, if, if his lie gets worse and or he sometimes I'll let, you know, a lot of times I'll let him do that as well. And Hey, feel, feel, do you feel any depression in the ground, you know, uh, 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 in the soil of the ground? We're not mm-hmm. talking about, the cuppiness of the grass and and if we do then yeah your ball is going to be embedded and most of the time you know uh well all the time they're they're honest about that and 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 you know they're pretty good and they'll they'll um understand that yeah Mm -hmm. you kind of just have to explain to them what the rule is a lot of times they they see this kind of cuppiness in the grass and they think well that's embedded well you sometimes have to explain the, the rule and say, hey, it actually has to break the soil of the ground. So you just think of it as you kind of have a tabletop and did you make a dent in that tabletop? And and the tabletop being the soil of the ground, not the not the grass growing on top of it. And if you made a, a dent in that tabletop and it's resting in it, then the ball's embedded. Yeah, that's a good way to visualize. I sort of think of a plane. You know, I, I always, I'm holding up my hand here and if I see that's embedded, I mean, that's not, that could be embedded even if there's grass intervening because it's actually changed the shape of Correct. the of the earth and that's always been a, I think a pretty good visual. Uh, I was sort of cupping my hand to show that the straight line has now been been misshapen. Um, okay, so um, notable rulings you've made over the years. Um, you had one this year, and I'd be remiss because I'm sure some of your the Pete List fans out there want to hear about this. You had one with uh, Justin Thomas. They got a little airtime and it had, it involved, I think a TIO, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I'd love, be, love to hear a little bit more about what went on there. Um, kind of how that got, you know, cause sometimes something that you think is very simple is going to kind of get viral uh, for a momentary period of time. Hopefully not too viral. That's the last thing you want, yeah. but tell, t- take us, uh, take us through that JT ruling and, and uh, because it did kind of stand out. Yeah, so here's another example of just kind of knowing your area and being prepared. So when I heard the ruling uh, call, and actually I wasn't covered, I, I advanced that event, uh, Wyndham Championship. So I know the golf course obviously very well. And I actually wasn't covering that area, but I was covering for, you know, I think it was during our lunch rotation. And I heard the ruling uh, right of, uh, of nine fairway. And I and I knew there's only two things it could possibly be. It could either be the balls across the path, which uh, across the road that runs to the right, which means it's out of bounds, or there's going to be some question about the scoreboard and we had some uh, a restroom tent up there. So uh, I actually got to the ball. It was kind of an, what we call an early call. I think uh, JT had called it from the tee. So I arrived and got there before, uh, before JT didn't had an opportunity to inspect the area before, uh, before he arrived and, and noticed that his ball was kind of right behind the tree. And, and that, um, Really, even though, yes, there was uh, a, t- a temporary removal obstruction between him and the hole, there was also a tree between him and the hole that was going to prohibit him from playing a shot directly towards the towards the hole. So so I kind of waited and, and uh, waited for him to arrive. And we, you know, we just kind of discussed it. Um, actually, I think I stepped back aside and let him get there and really think whether he needed, wanted to, to ask the question. And so when I just when I got, got into the ruling, uh, um, you know, I knew what his question was going to be and, and um, just tried to do my best to explain to him that we have to check a couple boxes here. A does the, does the uh, temporary move obstruction, is that between directly between you and the hole? Yes, it is. And that's one of the main things you need. So, okay. So we checked one box. The next box is we have to check. Can you play a stroke that has that directly on a line uh, for the, 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 line of play that you intend and can you get the ball to finish on a direct line to the hole and this is one that he couldn't check because no matter which side of the tree he wanted to go on there's no way he was going to be able to curve the ball hard enough to to, in my estimation there's no way he was going to be able to get the ball to curve hard enough to get and finish directly on a line between him and the hole so we had only checked one of the one of the two requirements 
um, for him to uh, to be entitled to relief in that in that particular situation. So, um, yeah, there was we had a little back and forth, and I think uh, maybe there had he had some previous rulings where um, maybe it was just slightly different, and he was entitled to relief. And there's also sounded like some instances where he know he he knew that he wasn't entitled to relief, and he was just trying to understand you know, what, 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 what the scenario was here, right. and what was the differences between right. the two. So that's how we kind of got there. But we, again, we only checked one of the, the two, you know, boxes just because it couldn't get the ball. So when, 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 that, ruling, that, when that ruling, when that verdict was, was rendered, did he accept it well and, and move on? Cause he, sometimes you, you read about these things and of course everybody in the media and on social media is trying to make everything into bigger than it is. And things are taken out of context. But was there any? Did you feel like he was not accepting your your ruling, uh, or was no, not he... at all? I didn't. I, I didn't feel that way at all. I felt that uh, he was just trying to get a better understanding of of, okay. of the rule and why he wasn't being why there wasn't relief in this particular situation. And um, again, I think he was going back to some situations that he had had in the past, and that's what was maybe getting a little confused, a little confusion in his mind. But no, I think he handled it very well. And, it was understanding and i honestly I, I don't know what he did i'm assuming he punched out to the left uh, i kind of drove off and, and yeah and stay like around for some staying, of that staying with that for just a minute i'll i'll it is an interesting rule the tio rule and i have to admit i'm a bit philosophically puzzled by why and this is a this is a good example 1999 john vandeville carnoustie hits his ball into the deep hay a bad ruling was given where he was he was going to chip out 90 degrees back into the fairway and there was a TIO, a television tower or something there. And the rules official wrongly gave him relief. But it was a very reasonable stroke, right? So you had to use reasonable in checking that second box. So I can understand why Justin Thomas was a bit confused by that because I don't, no. I guess we're trying to limit just how wide and, and crazy you're going to end up, I suppose, with all kinds of un, unintended consequences and relief where it really isn't warranted. But in that particular case, the 1999 Open Championship at Carnoustie, I thought that was uh, appropriate. I mean, that was a very reasonable. Now, as it turns out, he takes his relief and ends up hitting it on the green. And, you know, that's one part of that tournament people tend to forget about for obvious reasons, the way that thing played out at the very end. So can you sort of rationalize why the TIO has to be between you and the hole, you know, if I'm, well, under, if yeah. I'm making myself clear. Yeah. And I think that the main thing is, is, you know, the, the rules, there's a lot of gray, but this is one of those situations we're trying to, trying to have as much black and white as we can. And, and once we start allowing uh, some subjectivity to come in and, and we already allow it a little bit with, um, with the two and two ruling, but where we start allowing, um, what uh, what ball flights you're going to take, and and what directions of play uh, you're going to take. Uh, at that point, where we you really kind of can skew your relief areas, and my relief areas where the ball is going to be dropped. So I think that um, we're just trying to do our best in that in these particular cases. Uh, the USGA and and uh, all the people that that make the you know that write this rule is just to make sure that we can try and keep it as black and white as possible. And I think that, um, and I would say that I, I do believe that that Vandeville situation is probably a little bit uh, unique in that. Um, obviously, the rowing was unique, but the, the you don't we don't get that very often. I think that we do a really good job of uh, of our placement of these of these structures, and that okay, you're going to have very few situations where a guy is going to be playing directly has to play directly at it and is not going to get relief like has actual has a shot and is, is not going to get relief. Um, so it's just one of those things. I think it's just, again, trying to keep it as black and white. Um, you know, you get that a lot around putting greens where you have, um, you know, you give them the one, uh, I know it's a confusing really give them the one club length corridor. That's kind of their buffer zone from the side of the, of the structure. And they say, well, I want to play, I got it's a sloping green. I got to play it over it. Well, we're already giving, we're giving you one club length and that's going to be your, that's kind of be your buffer we understand that maybe they have to play a, a, a slightly a different shot um, because of the terrain, but again, we're just trying to do our best to keep it black and white. Right. Well, that makes sense. I mean, in, in this situation you have with JT, there was some subjectivity there, as you said, in your estimation. Absolutely. Um, but you're right. If you broaden that, it would become 
even a wider, you, you leave a lot more room for interpretation. Uh, I promised you we weren't going to keep you for more than 45 minutes, and we're already a little bit over, but I am going to keep you after class just for... That's fine. Uh, all good. Just really one more topic, and we could talk all day, and um, I know you have other things you need to do. Um, no worries. But I, have, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up pace of play. Uh, as you know, this is a major soapbox of mine. Still is. I haven't changed. I'm still just as uh, crazy as ever. I, I swear to God, it's going to be my the death of me because I get so just lathered up on the topic. I know you love baseball. And I got to tell you, I am so amazed at how impressed I am with how baseball took the bull by the horns, made some huge changes with the pitch clock, bigger bases, no shift. And they have a better product. And um, and I know that you have one ball in play. You've got all eyes on that one ball. It's a very different thing. Do you think, I'll start with this, and then I'd like you to just sort of respond more generally to, do you think pace of play is a problem? Um, but the specific question is, if your answer to that is yes, pace of play is a problem. And again, not everybody agrees on that, right? Um, not everybody agrees that distance is a problem. One of the things I've learned as I've gotten older and a little bit wiser, I hope, is just because I see it as a problem doesn't mean everybody sees it as a problem. I see pace of play as a problem. Uh, and I have a lot of evidence to suggest that there's a lot of people that agree with me, um, not the least of which is you just bring up the topic and people roll their eyes and cringe. And so it's a negative thing. So could you put a shot clock, institute a, a shot clock in professional golf and this is what I would propose. You put it on the putting green only. And when you arrive at the green, I know, again, all the de devil in the details. When does the clock start? Do you do you do it per player? Do you do it? Is, is that such a crazy idea? Because to me, I've observed that the majority of the time that 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 contributed, that contributes to, to pace is on the putting green. These guys are not, and gals, are not that slow tee to green. You have exceptions, but for the most part, they they move, they hit shots, and then they frankly they they use that time, they manage that time so that they have more time on the putting green. The putting green is where everything just comes to a complete stop. So why is that such a crazy idea that we couldn't have shot clocks on putting green? Yeah. So the, the first first question, though, I think pace of play is a problem. I think pace of play is a challenge. I'm not sure it's necessarily a problem. I think. Anytime we have 156 players on a golf course on a Thursday and Friday, it's just it, it, the inevitability of it is there's just nowhere to go. Um, and and the way that, that some of these polls play, par five, reachable par fives, and reachable par fours, it's just there's going to be waiting. There's going to be slowdowns. Um, so so to say that, that it's necessarily a problem um, – uh, you know, I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure. I totally agree. I think that it's definitely a challenge, and, and we would like to see faster rounds, sure. But I think we also have to deal with the, the number of players that we have. Um, to your shot clock question, I think the the, the uh, challenge there is having enough qualified bodies to do that. Um, not uh, and there are so many variables that go into. Um, as you mentioned, when does the clock start? When does the clock stop? So to say that, hey, I'm going to put a camera there to, uh, and, and uh, I'll just time everybody via camera. Well, you, there's a lot that you don't that you don't pick up on a camera, whether it's a cart that's driving, uh, you know, in his through line, and he's got to back up, or he's waiting for spectators to move. There's Tiger's group is walking by, and or you know, some, something to that effect. So there's just so many different distractions. Um, that can happen that uh, you just really need qualified people to do, right. to, to be able to handle that. Um, so to say that, uh, and, and honestly, I'm just, I'm talking from my personal uh, experiences mm -hmm. that has nothing to do, you know, this is not a PGA tour stance or at, at all. I just think that that, that would be the challenge. And, and um, I don't see it. Uh, I just don't see it happening anytime soon. No, I don't. And I, I hear you loud and clear and even in baseball, um, you'll, I, I watch when I go to a game and you see the pitch clock, there's some subjectivity. You'll see the bat, the batter back out. They stop the clock. There's all kinds of variables, but whoever's hitting that clock, um, 
you know, is definitely the, the, the easy part is just one. There's only one, there's only one ball in play as opposed yeah. to 156 balls in play. So I guess what frustrates me is the, the, the negativity around pace of play uh, in this sort of us versus them, the, the sort of finger being pointed at the rules officials, it's their fault. It's the player's fault. You just need to give out more penalties. And I just, I just feel like we're just going through this ritual and what I really applaud baseball for doing one of the most traditional games of all is, you know what, we're going to address this. And they did, they, they implemented it through the minor leagues. They burned it in and they, so I think that should be a, uh, that's commendable. And I think it's something golf to, whether it's a challenge or a problem, I do think golf has room for improvement on pace. And maybe it's just a clock that's up there for information only. So these guys kind of see it because my biggest pet peeve with pace of play is there's no real reward or incentive to play fast because you know the train is moving at a certain pace. So anything that doesn't move the train faster is pretty much not particularly effective. So what I like about a shot clock is it moves the entire, theoretically, it would move the entire train more quickly uh, because the idea that you can only be subject to penalty when you're out of position is kind of like, you know, um, it, it just feels to me that you're 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 fighting a problem or you're trying to cure a disease that's already it's already it's already a bad prognosis. So what's the you know what I mean? It's just frustrating. That, yeah. So are you, I'll try to so, wrap that up in the form of a question. Are there things that you see that you're doing from a pace policy that's moving the train faster versus just timing a guy who's out of position? Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, Think, yeah, exactly. We, we do have some policies in, in place, and I think we're, we're going to do some tweaking um, for the start of next year as well and, and to continue to improve. But, you know, one thing that uh, that is public and, and has been announced, it was, and I think it hasn't really gained as much traction as, as I think it probably should have, is we do, as officials, um, when we're in, quote unquote, our zones, because uh, generally when we're working a week, you know, we're in a zone, we're not, we're not walking with one group or covering a set of holes. And granted, we can only see one group at a time and one player at a time, but we're, but we time every group, every player that goes through us. And if they are over a certain amount of time, that and then there's other ramifications uh, for that um, throughout the year, throughout the round, throughout the tournament, um, where you know if they're over, take over 120 seconds, which is a lot of time. Two minutes is a lot of time to to play a play a shot. There are um, there are sanctions and and other things that that we can you know, do whether it's start timing uh, that player or group right away. Uh, uh, generally, it's just player. We don't do any group. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you know, if one player uh, has a bad time, we can, without being on the clock, you know, without uh, without formally letting them know they're being timed, but they are always being timed by by an official um, as they go through, through our zones. Now, there are some times where, but they're waiting in the middle of the fairway. There's a four group wait on the, there's a couple group wait on a par three, long par three or reachable par four. We're not going to, you know, necessarily timing those, but generally if a player is going through our zone, we're timing those players. And if they get over a certain amount of time, then, then they are subject to immediately just going on the clock. So we have some things in place um, that uh, to, to help uh, mm-hmm. with that. It's just some things that just aren't really, I guess, seen in, in, uh, in the media or Twitter or whatever, that uh, that we're doing on quite a uh, on a basis on a regular basis, and I will say that you know there are there there are times, and it's just not seen that um, we talk to a lot of players about about this mm-hmm. stuff. So, well, and you get the benefit of you know having other uh, arrows in your quiver to incentivize that we don't see spining sanctions. Just being known as a slow player is something that not very many people like. I wouldn't imagine. So just not wanting to be singled out. So thank you for educating is that's not something I was aware of that you are, could be subject to timing. I know the AJGA who's always done really innovative things with pace has done something similar where they have an egregious policy, I'll call it where they get a time and they have a lot of eyes on the players and their intern program, same idea. And I think that's great because this idea that you're only subject to a problem, the lights only come on, the accountability only steps in when you fall out of position and you could, you are contributing when you're taking 120 seconds to the, the slowness of the entire train and you ought to be held accountable. So I, that's a, uh, that makes me feel a little bit better than that you're addressing the challenge. So, 
Well, listen, yeah, we, we are. We're going to continue yeah. to address it. So it's, yeah. it's good. Well, again, I've checked every box, speaking of boxes, that I wanted to cover because I knew we didn't have two hours or three. Um, last thing before I let you go, um, anything else that you'd like to share with our audience about Colorado Golf Association, your time here, just kind of uh, uh, your perspective? And, and again, I just say we're very proud of you. And, um, and uh, you take a lot of pride knowing that you started here. Well, I would just say that, um, you know, the Coward Golf Association is one of the best, if not the best golf associations in the country. And, and, uh, and I got to see that firsthand. I think our, uh, I think the players there, um, enjoy, you got some of the best golf in, in the country and, um, and a lot of different options of golf, mountain golf, uh, you know, kind of low plains desert golf, uh, you know, just classic golf. Um, it's just, it's just such a fantastic spot. And I was so fortunate, um, for y'all to, to hire me and, and for me to have, as I said, have an opportunity to see it firsthand and, and learn from some great minds. Uh, you don't give yourself enough credit. You know, you've, you've worked plenty of major championships, uh, in your day rules, a golf committee member. Um, so you're, you're one of the, one of the top rules minds in, in the country as well. So, uh, it was, it was, I was fortunate to learn from you and then obviously thomas pagel uh, who everybody knows who he is nowadays he's the famous one out of the, right. out of the boat right um uh, but so and he's so proud of him too i mean he's doing such a fantastic job with usga and wish i got a chance to see him a little bit more than i do each year but um, but no i just can't say enough for for how good and and, and thank you enough for the opportunity that, that you all gave me and and uh, to make uh, make my dream come true so here I am. Great. Well, that's a great way, place to leave it. Uh, I'm going to stop the recording now, and then I'm going to ask you the real tough questions. Um, but I, but I, <laughs> it's been great uh, having you, and uh, we'll do this again. Thanks, Pete. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you.